The Lord be with you. Instead of our normal prayer for the beginning of a Bible study, I'm going to offer a prayer for peace today because of what's going on in the world. I was sitting in staff meeting on Tuesday, and I looked out and realized that we had a few people sitting in that room. Our director of music, for example, my right hand, um, Rachel Murphy, and a number of others who grew up in a different time period. Uh, they grew up after the end of the Cold War. Uh, but most of us in this room lived through it. Um, it didn't end until 1991, so many of us grew up with it and the threat of it and the dangers that existed between the, the, the United States and the former Soviet Union. And uh, we all thought that that had gone away. But I think what we're seeing now is perhaps the descent of that Iron Curtain again. And it's a frightening thing, to be perfectly honest with you, and the potential that this has to boil, boil over um, into the whole world. Vladimir Putin made the comment that what good is the planet without Russia in it? And of course, when you say make a statement like that, and then of course, you ask the question, well, what does he mean by Russia? Does he mean Russia as it is, or Russia as he has recently defined it, really a reconstitution of the former Soviet Union. It's just a frightening time and we need to be aware of it and be aware of the fact that men are limited. There's only so much we can do, but God is not limited. And Jesus Christ not only came to be our savior, he came to be the Prince of Peace. And so we appeal to him uh, in this time for the peace that's taking, uh, for the conflict that's taking place in Eastern Europe, but also for peace here at home, because regardless of which side of the political spectrum we fall on, one thing is very clear, our leaders are going to need supernatural grace to deal with this situation. So I just want to offer up a prayer for peace in our time. Let us pray. Eternal God, in whose perfect kingdom no sword is drawn but the sword of righteousness, no strength known but the strength of love. So mightily spread abroad your spirit that all peoples everywhere may be gathered under the banner of the Prince of Peace as children of one Father, to whom be dominion and glory now and forever. Amen. All right, well, let's turn today to Romans chapter 3. We're making progress, see? We're picking up steam. So we finished chapter 2. We're going to take a look at Romans chapter 3 today. We're not going to obviously get through the whole thing, but let's just go ahead and read through the first 21 chapters, 21 verses, excuse me. That was a Freudian slip or some kind of slip. I don't know what it was, but, but let's go ahead and read through these first 21 verses. Then we're going to go back and take a closer look at what Paul says. We're going to also do a bit of a review because sometimes when we dive deep into these chapters... Uh, we can forget Paul's whole argument. Uh, when this letter was originally written to the church in Rome, probably what happened is that the people sat down and had it read to them, or they read it in one sitting. And so they didn't actually take it apart the way that we're taking it apart. Now, they may have done that afterward, but they would have sat down and they, you know how this is. Sometimes you get a letter from somebody that you haven't heard from for a long time. You've been anxious to hear from them. And when you get that letter, the first thing you do is you sit down and you read through it quickly. You get the basic idea, but then you go back and you read it closer. 
And I'm sure that's what the church in Rome did. But sometimes it's helpful just to remember what Paul is saying, his main argument. And again, because there were no chapter divisions in the original epistle to the Romans, all of Paul's ideas just flowed one into the next. And that's the way we need to understand it. So we'll do that. But let's go ahead and read through these first 21 verses. Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does, this, does their faithful, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. For as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's a marvelous thing when you turn to Romans chapter 3 to see the way that the Apostle Paul's mind works. Uh, Paul was a brilliant individual. You all know that he um, probably had a very fine classical education. We talked about Paul's background when we started our study of Romans. Paul grew up in a city known as Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. It was one of the great university cities of the ancient world. It wasn't as famous, perhaps, as Athens. But there was a famous university there. There was a famous library there. It was the kind of place you could go to get a very fine classical education. And all the indicators suggest to us that the Apostle Paul had that kind of education. For example, when he went to Athens, he was able to hold his own with the great debaters of the day, with the great philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Peter would not have been able to do that as a common fisherman. But Paul was, indicating to us that he had a very fine classical education. But Paul also had a very fine religious education. We would call it a graduate-level degree in religion. Paul, of course, had been sent off by his parents, who were Jews, 
off to Jerusalem to study under the foremost rabbi of the day. He figures prominently here in the New Testament. His name is Gamaliel, and Paul studied under him, and he became a Pharisee, which was the strictest sect within Judaism in that day. These were the experts in the law. The scribes and the Pharisees knew the law backwards and forwards. So Paul had a very fine classical education. He had a very sharp legal mind. And like all good lawyers, he can anticipate the arguments of the other side. He can anticipate the objections of the other side. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 3. He is anticipating the objections that people are going to bring against the gospel. And he goes ahead and he answers them one by one. And the first challenge that is brought to the gospel as he has presented it is this. Does the advantage go to the Jews? Do the Jews have any upper hand at all? Or to put it another way, what's the value of being a Jew if we're saved by grace and not by works? Do they have any advantage whatsoever? To understand this, you again have to go back and sort of review what Paul has said in Romans chapters 1 and 2. And sometimes when you take that deep dive, looking at every single verse, blow by blow, we can miss the overall thrust of Paul's argument. But Romans chapters 1 and 2, pretty easy to understand. Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking about the state of mankind in general. He's not talking about Gentiles and Jews specifically, but humanity in general. And he's saying that all of humanity is under the judgment of God. Why? We've already talked about this. Because mankind has suppressed the truth. Human beings are not ignorant of the truth. God has made himself known in the things that have been made. But what has happened is that mankind has suppressed the truth because they don't want to worship God. They have instead begun to worship created things. They even worship themselves. That's a created thing. And as a consequence, he says, the wrath of God is being poured out against all mankind. All need to be saved, without exception. But then that raises the question, well then, what saves us? We all need to be saved. We've all suppressed the truth. We've all followed our own ways. We are all under the judgment of God. We all need to be saved. Paul makes that point very clear. What saves us? Well, in chapter 2, Paul explains what does not save us. That's the first thing he does. He explains what does not save us. And he mentions a number of things. He says, first of all, knowledge does not save you. And when he's talking about knowledge there, I think what he means is an awareness of God. Again, in Romans chapter 1, he talks about general revelation, God making himself known in the things that have been made. Well, some people think, well, as long as you believe that there is a God, that's enough to save you. But Paul's whole argument is that general revelation is fine as far as it goes, but it's not enough. I can tell you that a God exists. It doesn't tell you what that God is like or what that God desires. For that, you need a special kind of revelation. So he says an awareness of God, a knowledge of God is not enough to save a person, even though that's what some people might think. At least they're theists. Well, Paul says that's better than being an atheist, but it's not enough. He says membership in a particular group does not save us, which, of course, is exactly what the Jews thought. 
Now, of course, there were some Gentiles that thought that as well, as long as they were noble. The Stoics, for example, were very noble. Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic, and the Stoics were to some degree a noble people. They said, look, you never know what life's going to throw at you. You never know what's going to come your way, but the best thing you can do is have a stiff upper lip and try to make a contribution to humanity. So many of the Greeks felt if you were a Stoic, that would at least give you an upper hand. The Jews, of course, believed that because they were God's chosen people, unique among the nations of the earth, they were automatically in. As I like to say, they felt they had their ticket punched and they were on their way to heaven just by virtue of the fact that they were what? The children of Abraham. And Paul disabuses them of that idea. He says, knowledge or an awareness of God does not save you. Inclusion within a particular race or people or sect does not save you. And finally, he says, the sacraments don't save you either. That's what he's talking about when he refers to circumcision. As he does in chapter 2, toward the end of the chapter, he talks about circumcision. Now, circumcision is what we would call a sacrament. It was an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. That's how we define a sacrament. If you didn't know that, that's from the catechism. What is a sacrament? It is an outward and visible sign, something done in the flesh to denote an inward and spiritual transformation. And of course, circumcision was very important to the Jews. Even Jesus was circumcised, we're told, marking him out for inclusion within the Jewish people. But Paul says the sacraments are not enough to save you. Now, what was true for the Gentiles, the Greeks and the Jews of Jesus' day, is also true for us. We need to be aware of the fact that knowing about God is not enough to save you. We also need to understand that membership in a particular group, a particular denomination, or a particular parish does not necessarily save you. I think I pointed out to you the last time that nobody gets into heaven riding on somebody else's coattails. There was a movie that came out years ago. It's one of my favorite movies. I think I probably mentioned it before. It's called Life with Father. And it stars William Powell, Irene Dunn, and it's just a, a great movie. And in the movie, the whole theme is about Father, who is this Victorian banker. Um, and he lives in New York, and they live this very ordered life. If you've never seen it, very young Elizabeth Taylor's in it as well. But it, it, it's, it's a great movie. I don't know if you can find it on Amazon Prime or whatever, but look for it. It's well worth watching. It's very humorous, and it's nice and clean for a change. But the whole movie just sort of revolves around the fact that Father is this very respectable man. He's got about 12 children. They live in this affluent community in New York in the Victorian or Edwardian era. And one of the scenes shows... Father's sitting there at the breakfast table. They have this long breakfast table, all the children sitting around there, mothers at the other end of the table. There's maids serving them and so forth. And one of the little boys comes up to his father and he says, Father, will you review my catechism with me? Now, you'll get a kick out of this because they're Episcopalians. All right. So we can relate to this. And he says, Father, will you help me review my catechism? And his father says, sure, I'll help you review my catechism. The catechism is a series of questions and answers. 
And the first question is, what is your name? The boy gives him his name. He said, who gave you this name? My sponsors and parents in baptism. That's the answer of the catechism. And then the little boy says, Father, when were you baptized? The father thinks for a moment, and he says, well, you know, come to think of it, I'm not sure I ever was. At which point, mother at the end of the table says, now, Claire, his name is Clarence, Claire, that's nothing to joke about. This is serious business. And he said, no, Vinny, I'm serious. You know, my parents were free thinkers. I, they went to church, but I'm not actually sure they ever got me baptized. I think they decided it was something that I ought to do on my own. The rest of the movie is the entire family, along with the rector, conspiring to get father baptized. And there's this wonderful scene. Yeah, there's, there's the concern that they're not even married. That, that's mother's fear. And he said, now, look, we've got 12 children. If we're not married now, we never will be. But the whole movie's conspiring. Everybody's conspiring to get Father baptism, baptized. And I will never forget, there's this wonderful line in it in which he says, Vinny, everything's going to be all right. She said, no, Claire, you've got to make your peace with God. He said, listen, until you and the rector stirred him up, I never had any trouble with God. <laughs> and he said, and besides, and besides, he said, Vinny, you're so wonderful. He said that I know that when you get to heaven, if I'm not there yet, you'll talk God into letting me in. <laughs> That's the belief that many people have, isn't it? Well, I may not be perfect, but my grandmother, now that was a saintly woman. And if anybody can talk God into letting me in, bribing St. Peter, whatever it is, Grandma's going to do it. Paul says, nobody gets into heaven. You may get into the White House or the political office riding on somebody else's coattail, but nobody gets into the kingdom of heaven that way. And you don't get into heaven by the sacraments, simply by virtue of the fact that you've been baptized. How many of you have been to the Holy Land? Some of you went with me to the Holy Land. All right, well, one of the places that you visit is the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And at the top of the Mount of Beatitudes, there is a beautiful chapel. It's a lovely place overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It's a wonderful place. It's built in the round. You can go in there and just pray and think about the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus and his disciples. And you can see the little Palestinian sparrows flying through the trees. It's absolutely magnificent. Do you know who built that? Benito Mussolini. Benito Mussolini built that magnificent chapel. Benito Mussolini was a Roman Catholic. He was an altar boy. So was Adolf Hitler. Simply by virtue of the fact that you've experienced the sacraments, that's no guarantee that you're a child of God. So Paul is disabusing us of these ideas that these are the things that need to save us. Yes, we need to be saved, but none of these things are capable of saving us. There's only one way for a person to be saved, and that is by the grace of God received by faith alone. That's Paul's argument in Romans chapters 1 and 2 in a nutshell. 
But as I said, when you get to Romans chapter 3, Paul, and of course by this point he had been preaching the gospel for some years, he had faced a great many objections to his argument. And some of those objections had come from his own people, from the Jews. And Paul's anticipating those objections. And that's what he is dealing with here at the beginning of this chapter. Then what advantage has the Jew? Who's asking that question? The Jews. <laughs> Paul, if what you're saying is true, if we're not saved by our circumcision, if we're not saved by inclusion within the covenant people, if none of those things are enough to save us, if we have no advantage theologically over the Gentiles, then what's the point of being a Jew? Because being a Jew in the first century was not easy. There were all kinds of rules and regulations and stipulations and kosher laws about what you could eat, what you could not eat, what you could do on the Sabbath, what you could not do on the Sabbath. And if the Gentiles were saved in precisely the same way as the Jews were saved, what was the advantage of being a Jew? That was the argument that was being made to Paul. Do the Jews have any advantage whatsoever? What's the value of circumcision? My goodness, why are we doing this? Now, how does Paul respond? Well, he responds immediately. Is there any advantage to the Jew, any value in circumcision? He says there is much in every way. Even though these things do not save you, that does not mean that they don't give you an advantage. They do give you an advantage, an advantage over every other people on the face of the earth, Paul says. Now, to understand his argument, you really got to fast forward to where Paul lays out what these advantages are. He doesn't name them here in Romans chapter 3, but he's going to name them in Romans chapter 9. So keep your finger there in Romans chapter 3 and skip ahead to Romans chapter 9. Now, we alluded to these last week, but I want to go ahead and go through them in a little more detail because it's important to understand this is what Paul is saying. That's the objection that's being made. Oh, you're saved by grace through faith, not by works, not by circumcision, not by inclusion within a particular race of people. Well, then what advantage do we have? Many advantages, Paul says. Verse 4 of Romans chapter 9, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Now, when it says, according to the flesh, is the Christ, you understand that that word Christ is not a name. Christ is not Jesus' surname or his last name. Like Jeff Miller, Jesus Christ. That's not his name. It's his title. Jesus is the Christ. Christ means anointed one. All right? In other words, what Paul is saying according to the flesh, is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, who is God over all. Now, let's just take a look at some of these advantages that Paul lists here specifically. He says the first thing about the Jews that is an advantage over every other nation 
of people is the fact that they are adopted as God's children. Theirs is the adoption. Now, we've talked about this. If you were in the John study this past week in the Rector's Forum, I pointed out that none of us is by nature children of God. We are all creatures of God. That much is true, but we only become children of God by grace, by adoption. When Paul talks about adoption here, what he really means is they've been adopted as a nation. It's interesting to note that no Jew ever referred to God as his own father. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, our father, that was a dramatic thing. Most Jews would have never been on that kind of intimate basis with God. He was the father of Israel, but not the father of us as individuals. And of course, you know that the term that Jesus uses there in the Lord's prayer for our father is what? Abba. It literally means daddy. That's a very intimate term. The Jews would not have called God their daddy. God was the great God who came down in firing and lightning and thunder on Mount Sinai. He is the one who by signs and wonders and the power of his outstretched arm delivered them out of their captivity in Egypt. He was the one who led them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He was the Shekinah glory there in the temple, but he was not one who was approachable. But nevertheless... He was the father of the nation. In the same way, I suppose, that you might say George Washington is the father of the nation. Well, he was the father of the nation of Israel. That was unique. The Greeks couldn't claim that. The Romans couldn't claim that. The Egyptians couldn't claim that. No people in the Old Testament, the Assyrians, the Philistines, the Canaanites, nobody could have claimed that. That certainly was an advantage that God was the father of the nation. He goes on to say, theirs is the adoption, theirs is the glory. Now, by glory here, I think what we mean is revelation, special revelation. This is what Paul had talked about at the beginning of this letter. He said that God has made himself known in the things that have been made and what we would call general revelation, but God, in order for us to know what he is like, has to reveal himself in a special way. Ultimately, we Christians believe he has done that in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the special revelation. But there were other forms of special revelation even before this. You remember when God called Moses? Moses, we're told, was out tending the flocks, the herds, And all of a sudden, he saw out of the corner of his eye this bush that spontaneously combusted. Theologians refer to that as a theophany, an encounter with the divine, with theos, God. All of a sudden, this bush bursts into flame. And the text says, Moses said to himself, I will go over and see what this bush is all about. I think that's one of the greatest understatements in all of Scripture. You all know that that's a sanitized version of what Moses really said. When that thing burst into flame out of nothing, Moses said, whoa, and then whatever. And then he went over and he looked. And when he got closer, we're told that a voice came out of the bush saying, stop. Take off your shoes because you are standing on holy ground. You are in the presence of of the Almighty. And the voice said, I have seen the suffering and the affliction of my people 
how they are there in captivity in Egypt, enslaved, making bricks without straw, and I have decided to deliver them. And Moses has a conversation with God. That was something special. God had come down and communed with Moses on Mount Sinai. There was also the glory, as I said, as God led them through the Red Sea and delivered them from their captivity, and of how he was with them during the wilderness And of how when the temple was constructed by Solomon, the glory of God, we're told, filled the place. That did not happen to any other people. It only happened to the Jews. So God had become the father of the nation. He had revealed his nature to them. How he was a holy God, but a merciful God. Paul goes on to say they had the covenants. And it's interesting that he says covenants, plural, not covenant. It's probably a reference to any number of covenants that you find in the Old Testament. And there were many of them. God made a covenant with Noah, for example, after the great flood. God made a covenant with Abraham, that he was going to make Abraham the father of the nation, that Abraham's descendants were going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. And that all the nations of the earth, all the nations of the earth, not the Jews alone, but all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. God made that covenant with him. There was the Mosaic covenant. That is the giving of the law. We'll talk a little more about that. But when God actually marks out what it means to be his people. And then there was the great Davidic covenant. When God said that through the line of David, there would come one, a king who would set on David's throne and whose kingdom would not be temporal like the kingdoms of this world. It would be a kingdom and a world without end. Now, God had not made those promises to any other people on the face of the earth. He didn't make them to the Americans or to the British He didn't make it to the people of that day either. He made it to the Jews alone. So they're the adoption of sons, the divine glory, the covenants. They alone had received the law. The law was important. Why? Because it tells us what God is like and what God expects. If you're going to be his people and he's the sovereign Lord of the universe, this is how you are expected to act. How many of you as parents ever said to your children when you sent them off to school or wherever, now remember who you belong to? How many of you ever said that? How many of them remembered? (laughs) But we said it, didn't we? We wanted to remind them that there were certain expectations of them. That's what God does with the giving of the law. He says, now remember who you belong to the giving and the receiving of the law, the temple worship. You know, C.S. Lewis points this out at the beginning of his book, Mere Christianity, that there is this innate desire within all of us for worship. It seems to be hardwired into us. You can go to the most primitive cultures on the planet, or you can go to the most highly advanced cultures on the planet, and there is within all of us this yearning desire to worship. Now, what does that word worship mean? It comes from the Old English, and it means worth ship. It means to apply worth or value to someone or to something. This is why I point out that the most important thing we do 
every week is we worship. What happens on Sunday morning is the most important thing that we do as a church community, and it's the most important thing that we do as individual Christians. Bible studies are wonderful, and we're going to talk about why they're so wonderful in a moment. But the main event is always Sunday. Now, what most people think when they come to church is that they are the audience. The congregation is the audience. And who are the actors? Well, people like me, you know, you're up there and you're, you're dressed up and we're putting on a show for you and you've got the music and you, we feed you, we give you bread and wine and we, we do all of these things for you. It's the main event. And sometimes you leave church and let's be honest, the preacher's not always on. Sometimes he's a little long winded, um, but you know, I mean, that's how it is. And, and, you know, in the midst of COVID, it's no fun to take communion, you know, with masks on and all that you come out and you think to yourself, wow, why did I even go to that? Now just be honest because remember what we talked about last week, God is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known and the one from whom no secrets are hid anyway. So how many of you have ever thought that from time to time when you've left church? Well, you don't have to be so eager in putting up your hands, but thank you very much. We've all had those moments, haven't we? What we forget is that we're not the audience. God's the audience. We are the actors. We are there for His glory, to sing His praise. The question is not, do I like the music? The question is, does God like the music? The question is not, did I like what He said in the sermon? The question is, does God like what He said in the sermon? We're the actors. God is the audience. The focus should be all on Him. That's why the first words out of the celebrant's mouth are, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not good morning. Now, that's polite and so forth, but that puts the attention what? On the congregation as opposed to God. The focus is immediately on God. By the way, how many of you know what that word liturgy means? You know, we're a liturgical church. Now, some of you come from Presbyterian or Methodist or Baptist backgrounds, and you're not necessarily what we would call liturgical, but every church has some form of liturgy. But what does that word liturgy mean? It's a Greek word. What does it mean? Yes, the, the priest in the back said the answer. Of course, show off back there. Say it louder, Bill. The work of the people. That's what liturgy means. So write that down. Liturgy means the work of the people. So worship is the work of what? The people. The congregation. We are there for God's pleasure. It's His day. That's why we call it the Lord's Day. On your birthday, you get to plan. You get to decide what everybody else is going to do. Sunday is the Lord's day. We are there for his glory, for his honor. But the question is, how do we know what God likes? Everybody in my family knows what I like for my birthday. Because I let them know. Cash. That's what I like. I mean, let's be honest. Somebody asks, you want a cash? That's what I like for my birthday. But you all know if God is the, is the audience and we are there for his glory and for his honor, what does he want? What, what, what pleases him? The temple worship. 
was clearly defined for the Jews, telling them exactly what God wanted, what he was like, and what pleased him as the Lord of the universe. Every piece of furnishing, and we'll probably talk more about this in the John class on Sunday, but every piece and article in the temple had some form of significance. It pointed to those things that were characteristics of God. So while all the other nations of the earth worshipped deities and gods and so forth, even the Greeks worshipped the God they did not know, the unknown God, they didn't necessarily worship in a way that pleased him. The Jews had been given the temple worship, told how to worship in such a way that would please God. That was a great advantage. They had been given the promises of God. The Bible is filled with promises. Now, most of us as human beings have made promises or have been promised to, and those promises have been broken. Sometimes they're marriage promises that get broken. Sometimes they're debts that we owe that get broken. But whatever it is, we have all made promises that we've broken. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes not intentionally. Sometimes there are circumstances beyond our control that we cannot follow through with. Somebody came up to me just before this trip and um, just before this class and asked me about the trip that we're supposed to take to Germany uh, in the spring. I'm leading about 50 people. We're going to Germany in the spring. They said, is our trip going to go off? Because we're starting in Hungary, which, as you know, is on the border of Ukraine. And they said, is the trip going to go through? Well, I said, I, I hope. I've been talking as if we're going. Made a promise. But that promise may not be kept because it's beyond my power to do so. But the Old Testament... Paul says it's filled with promises that God makes to his people. And because God is in control of the circumstances, God's promises are sure. You ought to go through the Old Testament sometime and just look at the promises of God and claim them for your own as a child of God, because God never breaks his promises. Human beings may, but God does not. He never goes back on his word. That is a tremendous advantage to the Jews. He made promises to them. Paul says the patriarchs were given to them. The great champions of the faith, the men and women who spoke to God, that God raised up, that God used, the great heroes of the faith. You know, I think it's tragic for many young people today. They don't have many heroes. You know, when I was growing up, there were actually people that you could look up to. There were heroes. Now, that's not to say that young people don't want heroes today. They do want heroes today, but they either look to sports figures or they look to made-up heroes, superheroes. The Avengers, they're my heroes. Oh, good luck with that. It's true, there is a dearth of heroes in the world today, but... Many young people look to false heroes because there are no genuine heroes, but the Jews had genuine heroes, mighty champions. Perhaps, just perhaps, we're seeing a new kind of hero in the president of Ukraine right now. Certainly we haven't seen the likes of that kind of a leader in a very long time who stays with his people and is willing to suffer their fate. 
But that is an unusual thing. But the Jews had these great champions, Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon and the prophets, all of these people who had done great things. Let me tell you something. Heroes can be a great inspiration. I've always been more interested in nonfiction than fiction because nonfiction is the story of real people, ordinary people being used by God to do extraordinary things. That's the sort of thing that is encouraging because if God can use them, God can use us. Look, I'm not an Avenger. I can't fly through the air. That's not encouraging to me at all. They've been given the patriarchs. And finally, he says, from them, through them, would come the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior, not just of the Jews, but the Savior of the world. Now, let's be honest. Those are advantages, aren't they? Now, they're not the kind of advantages that are going to save you but they are advantages that can lead you to salvation. They're certainly pointers directing us. There is a sense in which as Christians, we have advantages. If you've been raised in a Christian family, just by virtue of the fact that you've been raised in a Christian family, that is not a guarantee that you're going to be saved. We just talked about that. Your mother can't get you into heaven. Your grandmother can't get you into heaven. Unfortunately, that just doesn't work that way. But don't you think that being raised around godly people, having been taught the things of the faith, that you have a decided advantage over those who've never heard? Of course you do. So when they say, well, there's no advantage to being a Jew at all, Paul, if these things don't save us, Paul says, are you kidding me? There are all kinds of advantages. The sacraments may not save you. They're not a means of saving grace, but they certainly are a means of grace. And if you pay attention to what's happening in the sacraments, my goodness, what a transformation it can make in your life. I'm reminded of the story of Susanna Wesley. She was the mother of John and Charles Wesley. She was married to a rector in the Church of England. John and Charles were both children of the rectory. Susanna, in her own right, was a sought-after woman in terms of being a spiritual guide, which was unusual for women in the 18th century. But she was an extraordinary woman. But you know the story of her conversion? You know when her conversion took place? She'd been raised in the church her whole life. But she never really knew what her sons knew, that strange warming of the heart, she said, until one day when she was kneeling at the altar rail and the celebrant, probably her husband, came along and took the bread and pressed it into her hand with the words, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you. And all of a sudden, she realized, for me. I don't know how many of you were at the Ash Wednesday service last night, but it was a very moving service of Ash Wednesday, a beautiful way to begin this penitential season of Lent. And a number of members of the choir, including Rachel Murphy, commented that it was so powerful, having heard Justin's excellent homily, to listen as people came forward and received those ashes placed on their foreheads with the words, remember that you are dust. And unto dust you shall return. Listen, you listen to those words. 
sometimes the words of the liturgy become so familiar to us, they can become rote, but they don't have to. I would encourage you sometime just to read the words rather than to just say the words from memory. Because some of us are auditory learners, some of us are visual learners, but actually read the words, pay attention to the words, and you will find that the gospel is proclaimed right there in the words of the service. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. The worship, the sacraments, the liturgy, these things are great benefits that we have as Christian people. They're not going to save us, but being raised in a Christian family, in a Christian home, in a Christian church, in a Christian community, that is an advantage that many people in the world simply do not have. Now, that's not to say that God can't save people who've not been raised in that environment. Clearly, he does. What it does mean is that you and I ought to be thankful for the benefits and the blessings that we have as Christian people. So when people object and say, well, what's the point? There's no advantage. Paul says, are you, are you kidding me? Look at the advantages you have. And yet having mentioned all of these things, that's not the greatest. Look at how he begins Romans chapter 3. He said, then what advantage has the Jew or what value is there in circumcision much in every way to begin with? To begin with. The Greek word there is proton, from which we get the term prototype. This might be translated as first of all, or some translations might put it chiefly. What advantages? Well, first of all, Paul says. Chiefly, the advantage is that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Greek word is logia. And it's translated here as words of God or as the oracles of God. I think it's the NIV that describes it as the very word of God. You know, people want to hear God speak. Sometimes a preacher will hear that. Oh, if God would just speak to me, then I could believe. And I like to point out that God speaks to us. You can hear him speak every single day. He speaks to us through his word. God spoke in a unique way to the Jews. He had not spoken to any other people. He gave them his very words. It's interesting, that term logia, oracles, is found only three other places here in the Scriptures in the New Testament. It's in Acts chapter 7. Let's just look at them briefly, each of them. Acts chapter 7 for a moment. He's talking about Moses. Luke is. Now look at verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge? This man sent, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. We talked about the burning bush. 
This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This Moses is the one who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living what? Oracles to give us. God spoke through Moses to give his word, his oracles, to the people. Hebrews chapter 5. Later on in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. The author writes, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. There's the word. You need to be taught again the basic word of the Lord. And then there's 1 Peter chapter 4, and this is an important one toward the end of the New Testament. First Peter, chapter 4. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Peter's talking about spiritual gifts. He says, as each has received a gift, use it for one another to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. What is Peter talking about there? He's talking about ministers of the gospel, who when they preach the word on Sunday morning, are preaching, if they're faithful, the very oracles of God. That's the reason why when we finish a reading on Sunday, we say this is the word of the Lord. Of all the advantages that the Jews had, and they had many, the greatest advantage, first among them, chief, was that they'd been given the word of God. You know, you could travel all over the world and see relics. I've seen the skull of St. Titus. I have. I've seen St. Catherine's finger. Napoleon didn't have a heart. But I've seen all of these relics, but we're told the greatest relic of all that is still on this earth is God's holy word. I pointed this out to you before. There are basically three views of the Bible today in the world. There is the classic view, what I would call the traditional view, the view that even in liberal denominations, they at least give lip service to every time they read the lesson. They might read from the book of the prophet Isaiah or from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, and yet when they get to the end, they don't say the word of Isaiah, the word of Paul, they say this is the word of the Lord. That is the classic view that God used human writers, but that God himself was the author. And that God, the Holy Spirit, so superintended the process that even though Paul was writing, Isaiah was writing, what was ultimately produced was God's word. Now, that's the classic view. 
The second view is the view of many liberal denominations, and that is the view that the Bible is the words of men and the words of God. But it's up to the scholars to figure out which is which. And what you quickly discover is that they don't agree on anything. And that's why the mainline Protestant denominations like our own Episcopal Church are in such trouble today. Because they don't know what they believe. And then the liberal view, of course, the, the skeptical view, the unbelieving view is that the Bible is simply the words of men. I want to suggest to you there's only one view that's tenable if you're going to be a Christian, and that is the view that this is the word of the Lord. Now, there may be some in here that we do not understand. There's much in the word of God that, quite frankly, I don't understand. But I believe that it's the word of God. And my advice to you is that when you accept it as the word of God, you accept it in the same way that you swallow an aspirin. You've got a headache and you go out to take an aspirin. The one thing you don't do is chew the aspirin. Because if you chew the aspirin, it's going to be what? Bitter. It's actually going to make you feel worse. But if you swallow it whole, it will work its power in your life. It's the same way with the word of God. There's much in here that you may not understand, but you understand enough to swallow it whole, to trust God that he will either make things clear to you or you will discover that it really doesn't matter. And we're just about out of time, so I'm not going to say anything really about this last part other than to say that what applies to the New Testament also applies to the Old. The Old Testament is just as much the Word of God as the New Testament is. There was a heresy in the early church, it was called Marcionism, which said that the Old Testament was not the Word of God, there were only some portions of the New Testament the Word of God. That was condemned by the church. We believe that God spoke just as clearly in the Old Testament, in patterns, in types, in shadows, leading to the New Testament. That's why Jesus said, not one jot nor one tittle of the law shall in any way pass away until all is fulfilled. Jesus said, I have not come to destroy the law. I have come to what? Fulfill it. Everything in the Old Testament, all the promises, everything was fulfilled in Jesus. So there are great advantages for the Jews in that they have been given the word of God. I would suggest to you that this is the great crisis of our time. This is the great crisis in the church. The main problem for the church has nothing to do with human sexuality. You know, that's what we all talk about. We talked about it here and we were looking at Romans chapter one. That's not the problem for the church. The problem for the church today is a problem of authority. That's what this is all about. What is the authority for the life of the church and what is the authority for our lives as individual Christians? Is the culture the authority, the vagaries and fashions of a particular time and place? Are we the authority for our own lives, deciding what's best? I'll be the master of my own faith, the captain of my own destiny. Or are we a people who live under the authority of God because God has given us this great gift, chief among them, his very word? That's the issue. And so when those people objected and said, oh, Paul, if we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, what advantage is there to being a Jew? He says, oh, there are great many advantages. 
You may not take advantage of them. You may not seize upon them. But the reality is you have been giving blessings the likes of which nobody else has. We know this as Americans. We are among the most advantaged people in the world. We try to give our children the best clothes, the best dental work, the best health care, the best education, you name it. Now, they may not appreciate that. You ever discovered that sometimes your children just don't appreciate all of those advantages? Things that were privileges for a previous generation are now considered to be rights by some people today. But just because they don't appreciate them doesn't mean that they're not advantages, does it? And that's what Paul is saying to the Jews. And that's what he's saying to us. And if we are Christians, if we have come to a point of enlightenment where we realize that Jesus is the Savior, we ought to thank God for these advantages. We ought to have grateful hearts for all that he has done for us and all that he continues to do. Then what advantage has the Jew or what value is circumcision? Much in every way. That's Paul's response. It should be ours as well. Let's close with a word of prayer and thank God for the advantages we have received. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. For the access that we have to your word, to live in a free country. We don't live behind an iron curtain where Bibles are outlawed. We have ready access. We can hear you speak. What an advantage that is, an advantage that many people do not have, either because the Bible is outlawed or it's not even available. But here we are with multiple translations. We thank you for your word. We thank you for our church. We thank you for this parish where the word of God is preached, where we have the opportunity to come and bear one another's burdens, where we can come and worship you in the beauty of holiness. Yes, you can be worshiped in a sod hut. We have the advantage of coming into a magnificent building in which everything in it points us to you, the glorious God of all. What an advantage that is. We have Christian brothers and sisters who pray for us, who care for us. These are advantages, Lord, that so many others do not have. And we have the gift of your son, who has conquered sin and death. That even in the face of loss, we mourn, but we do not mourn as those who have no hope. So we give you thanks this day for our advantages. They are many. They cannot save us, but they are blessings, and we are grateful for them, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.